0: Hello, and welcome to Our Hidden Stories. I'm your host, Sharice Johnson. If we're honest, most of us live life through a social media highlight reel, only sharing parts of who we are with those around us. Well, today is an opportunity to not only listen, but to get out of the game of hide and seek we often play with ourselves. So sit back, get comfortable, and let's dive into today's episode, because remember, There are always layers of hidden stories waiting to be told. Hello and welcome to our hidden stories episode one. Yeah. It has been a long time coming, at least for me. This has been something on my mind for a long time and I wasn't quite sure what to do with it, but I know this is the right space to bring it to life. wanna take a quick moment and introduce our first guest, my first guest, and that is my amazing husband, Randy. Hey. So we were in the car and I was talking What's about... up, everybody? Yeah, what's up? Sorry, what's I didn't up? even give you a chance to you say anything. You didn't any give advice. me a chance my to say bad. anything. You know how that works. But we were in the car talking about the podcast and you started sharing just different experiences, which I've heard in bits and pieces along the way. And so then I, I started begging and the more I came back to it, you were the first person that I wanted to talk to. And even though in many ways we've grown up together and been together for so long, we don't sit down and have these kinds of conversation and I've met a lot of people, but I do believe you have one of the most interesting, maybe that's just to me, and intricate stories that I've heard.
1: Yeah.
0: Had a lot of experiences. But for me, the biggest thing is you're so different than I feel most people understand in a way, you know, like mm-hmm. they look at you and I believe they think one thing and then the more that they get to know you the more that they realize or I think what they believe about you changes along the way. And that's that's kind of the whole focus is to realize we meet people all the time. And we have ideas and assumptions about what they're like and what they've been through. But until we really get to hear their story, we we don't have any idea why Mm. they are, you know, Mm. who they are. In my opinion, you are a person who has beat the statistics. You know, the odds in many ways were stacked against you. When you hear me say that, what comes to mind for you?
1: Mrs. Chambers. (laughs) Yeah, Mrs. Chambers, uh, East High School, Rochester, New York. Um, She was our guidance counselor. I think it was my sophomore year. Um, I had to meet with her, and she told me that I wasn't going to amount to anything. She said, you know, most of the young boys at this school, you guys want to amount to anything. You guys just want to play ball. Everybody can't play ball. Um, and if you don't have that ball in your hands, there's nothing else you can do. So wow. that was the first experience of somebody telling me that I had no chance. And it was a reality that you have to kind of think about closely and... Um, and try to gauge and and really allow it to challenge you and motivate you to prove prove people wrong,
0: so if you remember how did you take that all in? You know, was it in passing did it did it change how you did everything from that point on because you were middle of high school? By that
1: yeah, point. I wanted to prove her wrong and, and at the time I, I didn't really understand where she was coming from. Um, and I'm not, obviously I'm not giving you the entire, um, meeting. Um, I was struggling with math and she was trying to challenge me and hold me accountable instead of making sure, um, that the school was serving me properly. And what I mean by that, the school was overcrowded, overcrowded, excuse me, the classrooms were, were overcrowded and I needed to be in a setting that was probably less students, mm-hmm. um, have a little bit more focus. And, um, instead of trying to uh, figure out what types of things would help me learn better. She immediately began to just kind of attack me and tell me that I wasn't going to be anything, and maybe that was her way to motivate me to um, to be better. But I didn't I didn't think that was the case. I just thought she was mean. Yeah. So um,
0: that's not a great way to motivate anybody, right? You know, there are some people who would become motivated by that statement, but I. Th- I feel like there's a lot of people that would be crushed. And then you talk about being an inner city kid already growing up with all those different dynamics, things that you have to face and then not having somebody believe in you. That's an odd tactic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was tough. And that school, like I said, was, um, was overcrowded. It was a big school. Um, 90, probably 90% black, um, a large contingency of Hispanic and Latino students and then we had a pocket of you know of white students that probably all made up the other 10% but it was it was a, a predominantly black school and I went from there to um, my mom got remarried we're fast forwarding a, a, a few years here no actually it would have been the next year the middle of my junior year my mom got remarried and we moved out to a little town called Kendall and I went from East High 90% black to Kendall, 99.7% white. <laughs> you know, and Big difference. yeah, so there was like two, maybe three families, um, of black kids, and then me and my brother Ruben notched it up to, you know, we bumped it up to to five, <laughs> and um, that was a culture shock, and it was another change that I had to go through, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about some of the changes, um, but. Um, to go from East to Kendo was was a huge, huge change in my life. Um, there were some positives. There were some negatives. But I remember, I bring this up because I remember piggybacking off of what Miss Chambers, Chambers told me and what my struggles were. I got to Kendo and I had to take a couple of classes that my other classmates didn't have to take because I was behind. Yeah. And so it's funny because my friend Mark called me about three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, he and I, he went to kinder with me. He and I reconnected. And he um, he was like, man, I just remember, like, you were kind of lazy in, in school. You didn't really, like, there was a couple classes you were in. We were like, why is he in that class?
0: And he said lazy, like, yeah. even? Yeah, he
1: easy. said lazy to me three or four weeks ago. He thought I was lazy. And I said, Mark, I wasn't lazy. I was neglected. I was I was behind. The, the city school district didn't serve me well. I was just behind my classmates. It wasn't about laziness, as a matter of fact. I was able to kind of get somewhat caught up um, to other students that were in my in my grade at, at that particular school. I, I certainly didn't catch the ones who were far ahead of me. Um, but that's just a part of, you know, when you have a, a situation like that at East at East High School and then you go to a school that's probably a little bit more accelerated academically, mm-hmm. you walk in and those are the types of things you got to deal with because of your situation, mm-hmm. but, you know, at the um, inner city school.
0: It makes me think a little bit too about just the disparity between where you live and the education that's available to right. you. And how, I don't know that everybody recognizes how that sets you up for long-term. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just when you get behind early, it carries with you and you're you're always maybe feeling, and I don't know if this was your case,
1: like you're trying to catch up. Oh, yeah. All day long. I had to catch up. Once I got to college, I was still behind. You know, I was taking classes that we were like in a basement of a a building because they didn't have a classroom (laughs) for this math class I had to take in order to prepare me for college algebra because my degree was a business degree. I was trying to get a business degree Mm -hmm. and I was going to have to pass college algebra, statistics, finance. But I was so behind. They were like, you got to take a basic fundamental concepts math Mm -hmm. class. Yeah. And um, that was kind of embarrassing, but I had to do what I had to do. Yeah.
0: Growing up, you mentioned change.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: What, you know, when you think about the changes that you've had over time, and I know for everybody there's so many, what are some of the changes that you feel now really stand out to you? You know, in the sense of here are some just key moments that make you who you are right
1: now? Well, my parents got divorced, number one. That's the first change. Um, So, you know, I come from a broken home, just like you. And, um, you know, society tells us what a broken home is. It's, you know, by definition, when you're raised by one parent or a grandparent, um, that was the definition of a broken home. But I didn't feel like my home was broken. I felt like my mom did a great job of providing a home for us the best that she could um, so the first major change that had the greatest impact on me was was my parents getting divorced. Mm-hmm. At such a young age, having to experience that and what the things that came with that um, were very difficult. So, you know, that's me. My, I have a twin brother and then my older sister. And your parents get divorced. And you got to navigate all the nuances of what, what life is going to be now because of that change. So. Mm-hmm.
0: It's crazy at my age, which I won't give. I still get, <laughs> I don't want to, emotional when I hear the word broken. Right. You know, I, I get the context around it, but I just remember the stigma. Yeah. It was just such a huge deal, and you were looked at differently when you were growing up if both parents weren't there.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. You were a knucklehead. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you were a knucklehead, you were high risk.
1: High risk, reduced lunch.
0: Yeah, just all the assumptions mm-hmm. um, of different people. And I kind of like what you were saying. I just feel like people set you up to fail going, oh, well, they come from a broken
1: home. Right, they you come know? from a broken home, right, yeah. right. That's and, that's why they had these struggles.
0: Yeah, and almost like they didn't believe in you. Mm. For you, what what was the hardest part if there is, or some of the hardest parts probably, of being raised by a single parent, which we both were, mm-hmm. and and how that changed your life.
1: Well, my dad not being there all the time. You know, when your parents get divorced, somebody's got to go. So somebody's not going to be there. The force is no longer balanced. And, um, you know, it's funny. Actually, when my parents got divorced, we actually lived with my dad first. And... Um, I don't know what what happened there. I can't remember, but I do remember us. um, My mom having to come and get us, and we had to move in with her. And I remember her apartment. I remember it very well. It was a one-bedroom apartment. Man, and I would like to say it was on North Street, but I could be wrong. (laughs) She would have to correct me on that. Um, And I just remember um, just the things that we had to do to just get basic stuff done. You know, mm-hmm. think about it. You're living in a one-bedroom apartment. Now your mom, her whole life has, has has changed now. She's got to change her situation. So think what comes with that. Now she's got to find a bigger place. That means she's got to get a better job. She's got to make more money. She's got to provide more food. She's got to provide clothing. She's got to do everything, right? Yeah. And um, I have a relationship with my, with my father. This is not a bash your dad session. Um, I have a relationship with my father. He was there, but he wasn't always there. Um, that was the biggest struggle. And in fact, you know, my dad called me and I know we're just freestyling, right? Yeah. All right. So my dad called me, what, four weeks ago, maybe four or five weeks ago. And, um, he apologized. I'm not even sure if I told you this. I'll tell you this. Yeah. He apologized to me and he, well, he said he loved me, but I think, I don't know what was going on with him, but he was just like, Hey, you know, there was things that I didn't, I didn't teach you, you know, and, um, you know, I watch you with your son. I watch you with RJ and, you know, you teach him everything. You know, everything he knows is from you. There were things that I just couldn't teach you. I didn't know how to teach you. Mm -hmm. And he apologized. Um, But it just made me think about a lot of the things that I did have to learn on my own and a lot of things that we had, we had to just, we just had to go through and do. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about a major change, I mean, there's just so many layers to it. Um, I can, I can think of um, times where, you know, just washing our clothes was like a struggle. It was a field trip. You know, we had to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was a working field trip. We had to go. We, we had to walk. We didn't, we didn't drive. We, so we're walking down the street as a family with baskets of clothes, and we had to make multiple trips. Wow. Um, now, you're talking maybe a mile or two? But
0: that's a long That's
1: a pretty long walk, walk. with some baskets in as your hand, as right? As a kid. As a kid, especially when it's, when it's hot outside. Um, and then you think grocery store. You know, we got to get groceries. Now, it wasn't always like that. My mom eventually was able to, you know, her income was able to increase a little bit. She would get a vehicle or maybe somebody else would help her with the vehicle. See, and the thing, as a kid, you don't know all the details. You don't know who stepped in to do what to help your mother. You just know your mom was going about getting things done Mm -hmm. and making sure we had what we needed. So Mm -hmm. um, those are some of the small details that come with these changes we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I also wonder, though,
0: how, and this isn't something... I don't know that we've ever really talked about. I would think that that would impact confidence in a way. You know, you have this part of kind of the traditional black family that says what happens in this house stays in our house. But when you were talking about walking down the street with your clothes, you can't hide that. You know, if somebody comes across that you know, or you know from school, like in my mind, I'm also wondering, and you know, I don't necessarily expect you to remember, that was a long time ago. The shame Mm -hmm. that comes from or could come from, I won't assume, not having what other people have or knowing that your family has to work so hard Mm -hmm. to just have the basics.
1: Yeah. Hey, I mean, you coveted the things that you saw other people people having Mm -hmm. and experiencing. Now, remember, we're from the inner city, so it wasn't like our neighbors were, you know. driving Mercedes Benz's and stuff and doing things so much more drastically different than we were. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't uncommon to see other kids and other families doing it. Um, so, but yeah, but there were still kids in the neighborhood, families in the neighborhood who were better off. And then you have your own family members who are better off. Mm-hmm. And so you, you look at them and you might be a little jealous and say, man, my cousin has this, my cousin has that or, or whatever. But um, certainly the, the, the struggle was real and a lot of shame came with it. And, I'm sure our our self-esteem and our confidence was was severely impacted Mm -hmm. at those times.
0: It makes me think of a funny story. I don't remember how old RJ was, but I remember buying him a pair of shoes. And I was just thinking, oh, I don't want to spend a lot of money on buying him shoes because he's going to grow out of them. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Maybe they came from Target or Walmart. And I brought them in the house. And you about lost your mind. Right. And I was like.
1: Yeah, we ain't wear no riddles. Yeah, you call Pony. them. We ain't wear no riddle, ponies.
0: Pony. You call
1: them bubbles. Bubble. Bubble. Bu- bu- I can't even say it anymore. <laughs> bubbles. Yeah.
0: And I bubbles, was, man. Like, no wait, bubbles. There, he's a kid. Like, nobody's paying attention. But then you shared with me, you know.
1: Yeah, I just wanted my kids to, to have the finer things. I mean, they say finer things. You know, I'm not. Just, just better things. I wanted him to. I didn't want him to go to school and kids pick out his shoes because that's mm-hmm. what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I remember how that made me feel. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure my kids have the best they can have. Yeah. So if I got to, you know, pay 80 bucks, 100 bucks for some Nikes, that's mm-hmm. I'm going to work hard to make sure I can provide mm-hmm. that for my son and for my daughter. And
0: mm-hmm. But I think why that stands out to me is that was the first moment that I remember thinking I need to understand more about why he feels the way he feels, you know, cause you would feel a way or express a certain thing, but I didn't, you weren't always quick to tell me your story in the mm-hmm. beginning. So I didn't always understand why is it a big deal? Because, you know, we're both black, but our stories both grew up with single parents are still very, very different. Um, and, and I realized that it, it matters with, not judging people's initial reaction without understanding, hey, what is it about that mm-hmm. that you didn't like or bothers you? What can I do different? And I remember once you told me that, it completely clicked in yeah. end of subject. But I think if you didn't share it with me, I probably would have bought you on it and just yeah. been like, I'm buying him what I want to buy him because it's cheap.
1: Everything I do with the kids is a product of the things I experienced. I don't want them to experience life the way I did. I want them to have it better. Yeah. So everything I do is a, is, is a product of what happened to me in my youth and the things that I had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Excuse me.
0: You know, when you say the word better, what were the moments that helped you realize that better was even possible? You know, because you can get stuck in what you see and what's around you.
1: I always believed it was possible. I figured I just had to work hard. You know, mm-hmm. uh, my mother encouraged me to work hard, and um, you know, I knew there was a. I had the chance to do that if if I would just stay focused, stay locked in, um, and not allow my circumstance to dictate um, how I was going to respond in life. Um, you know, you. There's other things that helped though too, you know athletics played a big part, things you would see on t v um, people in your life, so you could see that there were examples that you could look to mm-hmm. to say okay i can I can do this yeah
0: who were those people for
1: you? I can think of three people um that had a huge impact in my life. Um, one would be my pastor from uh my late middle school years, all the way through, pretty much through high school, um, his name was Greg Paris. He was a pastor of Church of Love in Rochester, New York, and he had a huge, huge, huge impact on my life, not only spiritually, but emotionally. He poured into me. He poured into everybody, really. Um, it was kind of one of those situations where he was a pastor, but he was, he was a he was the youth pastor, too. We had youth leaders and we had other adults that were working with the youth, but he was the one you would go to. And, um, one of the great responsibilities he allowed me to, to carry was they called it, then they called it being an armor bearer for your pastor. Mm-hmm. Most of the time at our church, these were adults, mm-hmm. but there was something about he and I, our relationship where, um, he allowed me to do that. And pretty much I would just be like a doorkeeper for his office and I would hold his briefcase. I would hold his Bible. I would have his drinks and his towel and every time he would walk up to go preach on Sunday, his office was downstairs. We had to walk upstairs to the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. I would be with him. I would go into the service late. with He would always kind of go in when the music was already started. I would go in late with him. And my job was to make sure he had what he needed. And uh, it's, it's funny because uh, based off what I do for a living, um, being a worship pastor and um, in, in the Bible, worship pastors and songwriters of Psalms were doorkeepers. Oh, wow. I didn't that know was that. a part of their task. They were doorkeepers. That's, crazy. Um, that's why the psalmist says better is one day in your courts than a thousand years elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper wow. in the house of the Lord than be, you know, mm-hmm. um, the person that wrote that psalm was a worship leader and that was part of their job. They were doorkeepers. So it's just funny that that's, kind of, that's what I do. And that was one of my my um, my greater experiences growing up in church. Um, another another guy is Michael Peace, um, because our well, Michael Peace was like um, he was like the youth pastor for the city. Mm-hmm. This dude was unbelievable. Um, he built the entire youth group from the from just the city. He brought kids in from everywhere wow. and he had a huge impact on my life. Allowed me to take a couple of my summers and spend it um, at Kingdom Bounds, um, a program that we where they would send uh, young, aspiring Christian students to. Um, and we would learn together. Uh, we would camp together we would pray for each other um, and it was just a great camp and in it, and it, it there were lasting relationships from that camp um, and mike peace being one of them uh, kind of kept us off the street kept us out of trouble and then um, i would say the third person would be bob johnson he was my mentor my mom got me involved in the urban league program um, i had to write an essay and uh they would connect you with somebody that based off your essay That would be a good connection based off the things that you wanted to do Mm -hmm. and bob johnson was one of the more successful um, black businessmen in western new york he was a car dealer and he was my first driving lesson he was my first he was my first uh flight on an airplane Mm -hmm. um he took me on a little eight seat airplane we flew to pittsburgh to pick up his wife allowed me to sit in the cockpit and learn things about the airplane taught me how to drive on a a cherry red Corvette, white leather interior. Um, It it was just crazy. The things that I was able to do with him, he introduced me to all kinds of people, gave me a summer job at the dealership, Mm -hmm. making good money, doing like, not like I wasn't washing cars. Mm -hmm. I was like working with parts managers and Mm -hmm. and mechanics and um, doing all kinds of stuff within the business. He was pretty much teaching me the business, um, which is why when we first met, I told you I wanted to be a car dealer. You started laughing at me.
0: It was funny. I just, that's not something that you normally hear. And
1: yeah, like, I want to be a car dealer when I grow up. People yeah, don't really say, I was like, yeah. like,
0: what? I mean, yeah, I mean, car dealers, and maybe it was different in the North. Car dealers in the South were not esteemed well because they were crooks. They were not nice people. I always felt like you would go and they would try to convince you to get something that you didn't want to. So
1: Yeah, it's got a, I know it has a negative connotation to it, but. Yeah. That was my dream, and you just smashed it.
0: I didn't smash it. I just knew in my heart that you weren't gonna be <laughs> a car dealer, even though I had just met you and I had a lot of nerve to tell you what you weren't gonna be. Yeah. So I'm sorry that I smashed your dreams. Yeah. yeah. But I think so it shout out, out for you. shout out
1: to Bob Johnson Chevrolet. Yeah, I
0: think yeah. it worked out for you in in the long run.
1: And, and you met I, Bob, right? You remember I, me? Just, I did meet
0: Bob. Me? Yeah. Yeah. He was he was really sweet. You know, you just told. Us He's not a dead bit, though.
1: You said it was so. just...
0: No, I mean, like, he was nice when I met him. I didn't say he was dead. I'm just saying, like, when I met him, he was great. I got you. He's still alive. You told us a lot about some of the people that were in your life that meant a lot to you, Mm -hmm. and it totally put you on the spot. What is something about how you grew up that's hard to acknowledge or not a great point that you enjoy remembering? but
1: it's still with you. Uh, I think it's just the overall struggle of, um, being raised by a single parent, your mom, you know, she had to do everything. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's certain things that you need to talk to a man about, you know, and we didn't have that outlet that wasn't available. My mom did a great job of raising us. Um, and she was a part of helping um, put some men in my life. But the most difficult thing is you want to you be able to have full access to your father. Mm-hmm. You want 24-hour access. And you can't have that access. That's the hardest part. That you don't, mm-hmm. you don't have that. Yeah. So you got to turn to other people. You turn to other things. You try to fill that void with other stuff. And a lot of times that stuff isn't the right stuff, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Mm-hmm. So when you think about how you grew up and who you are now, what do you feel people misunderstand about you? What do they read wrong?
1: Um, I've thought about that before. I, I think, I think the people that know, I think it's twofold. I think the people that know me, Understand me, because I wear my emotions well. I had to well? come to grips with that. Yeah, I wear them. What's wrong with well?
0: What do you mean you
1: wear them well? I wear I wear them on my sleeve.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. That
1: means I wear them, them well. I show them. Know. Yeah. <laughs> well, if somebody wants to know if I'm mad, they they can yeah, tell say, like, he's not happy know, right now. No,
0: but what's your definition?
1: Um, well? I think I think people always want to experience the the, the safe part of anybody's personality, right? Mm-hmm. That. Whatever part makes them feel safe, that's what they want you to be all the time. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't want to experience the ugly stuff. And that's mm-hmm. when you know you have a true friend. Yeah. So people that know me well, I think I, I would like to think they don't really misunderstand. The people who don't know me probably would think that my body language, my facial expressions, because I got this urban inner city stain that still kind of mm-hmm. consumes me. Mm-hmm. I think they can be thrown off by that. I've heard people say that I come off of as a little intimidating sometimes but that's like younger people sometimes you know our kids friends mm-hmm. i was scared of your dad he was mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. like what are they scared of me for i'm yeah. i'm good I'm, just, I'm cool you know but i think they just see my demeanor and they just are, they, can't they assume you, they don't know right what think. that's that's yeah. the right word a lot of that's that's it i've heard people say that i can't i can't get a read on you yeah. and my response is always don't try to read me i'm not a book yeah. try to get to know me mm-hmm. and then you'll know where i stand with things and who i am um but it can be. I know. It, it, I think people have been intimidated, um, and I don't. I don't know where that comes from. I'm guessing it's just a physical thing. just maybe a facial. My because my facial expression, I know, can be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got baby pictures, and I'm like, dang, I'm not happy. But I probably was happy. <laughs> yeah. It's just I just look like I'm not happy. Yeah. Um, so I would say that, that.
0: Yeah.
1: That's the biggest thing.
0: Well,
1: <laughs> you know. You you talking to you know me?
0: No, I'm just saying facial expressions. I hear you. You're, you know, you also at any given point have a ton on your mind. So I think when we're yeah, interacting. And I have a
1: one track mind. Yes.
0: Yeah. And so I think when we're interacting with people, just by nature, if somebody doesn't look the way we want them to look, we think they're upset with us or they must be mad and we, we want to fix it. And you're definitely not looking for anybody to fix you. You know, right. it's kind of like, hey, do your thing, let me do mine. Right. And then. Well,
1: but, I, but I know I'm not warm and fuzzy either. Mm-hmm. you know i'm not bubbly
0: you can be which is so
1: that's so, what people that i trust yeah
0: true. Very true you know
1: if i if i'm warm and bubbly with you then that means i i mm-hmm. trust you because i for me naturally it's a defense mechanism i'm not going to get too close if i think you're gonna hurt me mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. so if i've I've had people try to get close to me and they're like i just can't it, I, that means there's something about you that i think you're going to try to hurt me yeah.
0: <laughs> i was going to say how do you how do you judge that like what is it that you feel or know? People
1: are flaky. I have a, I think I have a gift of discernment. I can discern pretty quickly. <laughs> of people's flakiness? Flakiness, man. Shadiness. People who are shady, people who are flaky. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to give certain people a, a try. There's there's people that I, I knew going in, this dude's flaky, mm-hmm. and or this person's flaky, shady, something's not right, and I'm, like, I'm gonna me give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I'm misread, misreading
0: this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like,
1: nope, I was right. Look what happened. Mm-hmm. So you have those kind of experiences, and then you're, you're, you're more careful the next time.
0: So in our family, do you ever feel misunderstood? Do you think there's moments that the kids or I misunderstand
1: you? No, I think I think you guys know me, know me the best and know me well. I think early on in our marriage maybe there were things that you had to learn still. And you talked you talked a little bit about that. Um So yeah, I think as you as you know Early on there were things you had to kind of adjust to and go, Why was that about? Yeah. You know. Yeah. And vice versa. So
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that goes along with it. But I will I will say this the same things that have been challenging for us or for me in our marriage, ironically are the same things that I appreciate. You know, I will always tell people who ask me Kind of about you or, you know, now that our kids are older and they're asking us questions. What I've loved and hated (laughs) is that I always know what you think. You know, there are some moments I don't want to know what you think. I want you to keep it to yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But at the same time, there's a lot of security in knowing, hey, he's not going to make me wonder what he's feeling. You know, he's going to he's going to tell me and we're going to get through it and and put it out there. As a father, I am amazed that you are the father that you are, just considering you didn't have a role model. I remember the kids were doing a project. I think Cece was doing a project.
1: Well, I wouldn't say I didn't have a role model. I would say I just...
0: A constant. I'm just saying. My dad was always there. He was there, but not always there. But that's what I mean. Right. You know, you didn't have somebody in front of you modeling for you every single moment. No
1: doubt. Especially in a a home that's not obviously not broken. Right,
0: right. Just like, you know, there were things that coming into our marriage we had to learn because we didn't grow up in married homes. So we didn't see the interaction of, oh, this is how you're supposed to operate as a couple. We had to figure that out. We had to figure it out. Yeah, along the way. But I'm amazed at how you have translated that as a father. If our kids listen to this, which who knows if they actually will because they're just like that. What do you want them to know about your story or what motivates you as a father?
1: Well, I grew up in a low-income, single-parent home, broken by definition. I was a latchkey kid. I was the reduced lunch kid. I was the summer camps for the inner-city kids kid. (laughs) I was the, the, the less fortunate I was the youth sports with not enough money for the, for the uniforms and cats got on different colored pants. Um, I was a part about, I was a part of home invasions, robberies, street fights, gang violence, drugs, you know, my upbringing involved, there's teen pregnancy, there's racism, there's inequality. I was labeled, criticized, beat down, all that stuff. And I love them hard because I don't want them to ever have to experience any of that. So um, I want I, what I want them to understand about me and and maybe why I father them the way I do is that things can be much worse, you know mm-hmm. things can be things can be crazy. They can be super in, un- unstable, unpredictable, it could be ugly, it could be dark. And I don't want them to experience any of that. So it still hurts me today that I missed Sierra's um, cheerleading competitions in Florida. Yeah. But RJ had something going on. So you and I were like, well, we'll just split the duties. It made more sense for you to go to Sierra, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want my kids to ever be in, in a situation, in an event, doing something where they would look around and, and dad wasn't there. They were going to see me. I never wanted RJ to be that kid on the porch with his baseball glove in his hand and it's raining and he waiting on me to, to throw with him. No, I want to be the dad that's getting him out the bed saying, get your glove. We're going to go throw, mm-hmm. you know. So my motivation was that they wouldn't experience an ounce of what I had to experience. I want them to have a full time dad all day, all night, 100 percent.
0: Makes me a little emotional to hear that list. Like, even though I know it in bits and pieces, sometimes when you take your story and you write it and list it and in your head and in your mind, it's hard to believe you've gone through all of that.
1: Yeah, and some of this stuff is—it was just—I was around it. When I say teen pregnancy, I didn't get anybody pregnant, but my sister got pregnant at a young age. Bless her heart, she made a mistake, and she's a—she's a wonderful mother. Yeah, and um. You know, I had to help her raise her daughter, Brianna. Mm-hmm. Um, the dad walked out. He didn't want to have anything to do with her. So we had to step up. And we helped Christy as much as we could. Um, for, for a teenage boy, I helped her as much as I could. I remember learning how to change diapers. They, she had to wear cloth diapers. She mm-hmm. was allergic to diapers. Mm-hmm. So imagine that. You got to change with the needles. So
0: that's why you were so good at changing Yeah, I had to change
1: cloth diapers. diapers. Brianna wore cloth diapers. Um, mm-hmm. And so... You know, just going through that, it affects the family as a whole. It's not like, you know, obviously I wasn't the one pregnant, but sure. um, my mother, my sister, you're talking about a single-parent home, and then you're in a kid mm-hmm. um, or a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just another dynamic that mm-hmm. changes everybody, mm-hmm. and has an impact on everybody.
0: Yeah. Well, those moments make you grow up really fast.
1: Oh, yeah. It's crazy. You hit puberty real quick. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and a lot of times people, or the kids in particular recently especially now that they're getting close to the age that we were when they got married are like how in the world were you married at such a young age and i will constantly tell them well life experiences matured us a great deal yeah
1: we were 21 22 mm-hmm. we were like 27 really 28 <laughs> you know we 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 weren't trying to go through the whole bachelor lifestyle that wasn't we we didn't <laughs> nobody's thinking about that yeah you know But
0: I also just think, again, we had been through so many things that by the time we got to that point, we didn't have the luxury of just being happy-go-lucky. And it's, you know, it's made us who we are. Don't regret it in any way. No doubt. You know, but are you proud of yourself as a dad to see what you've given your kids? I'm
1: proud of myself because our kids are doing well. They're saving us money on college tuition. Um, getting a getting a return on my investment yeah. in your investment super proud of them they're great kids they're loving, good people um uh, mm-hmm. they're not perfect um, but even in their imperfections to me they're perfect like I see them and I see perfect kids, mm-hmm. but not because of me i don't want the glory for that that's all God got his hand has been on this thing from jump mm-hmm. um, and he's the one that gets all the glory for it so
0: mm-hmm. I always love how. Humble you are, you don't love compliments or mm-hmm. being given credit for anything. But what is it about compliments? Like I legit feel like compliments make you uncomfortable.
1: They do. I, I don't I don't know. This may be something that um may be a bondage of mine. I think I I think it's a self esteem thing. Um mm-hmm. I struggle with being good enough. So, anytime you struggle with being good enough, when somebody tells you you were good enough at something, you're like, nah. You're immediately you're immediately thinking, no, that wasn't that wasn't I wasn't good enough on that. You think I was, but okay, I'll take the compliment. No biggie. So I don't, I don't always receive it, that well. It's a self-esteem issue that um. It's it's, it's probably more of a, a, a byproduct of, a lack of belief all the way down to my core. Mm. It's that deep and I'm not sure I can reach it. Wow. You know?
0: That's a big statement to make.
1: Well, you told me to be vulnerable. I did. Be real. I did. I'm just trying to be as real as I can be for your for your little show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I love it. It's, it's hard to hear. It just, you know, of course, it's hard to hear someone that you love um, be honest. And not that, of course, I don't want you to, but it's, it's just hard to hear because, you know, I want to take you and wrap you up and, and make all of those things better, which I mm-hmm. know in some moments along the way have driven you crazy. Because you're like, babe, I'm not, don't want you to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I do hope you have felt enough in our marriage. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, I'm sure I have not always made you feel that way. I will be honest. But I think over time, as I understand you more and more, and it's... I don't think understanding each other ever stops.
1: Right. It doesn't stop.
0: You know what I mean? I feel like you you get understanding, and you go through an experience, and then you understand another level, and then you hear the story again, and you look at it in a different way. Right. I definitely know that there were things that we may have struggled with early on in our marriage that wasn't you. It was me. Right. And my own stuff that I didn't see. Right. You know? And how that all... Played in together, but because I have you here and you can't do anything about it, I want to say you've always been enough.
1: Thank you, baby.
0: Yeah, you've always Appreciate been it. enough. Keeping that same thought in mind, are there moments then when you have felt overlooked, or felt like people were intentionally?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of times I felt overlooked. Um, uh, you know, sometimes it's like I, I, but I feel like it's my fault. I feel like I didn't knock the door down, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, uh, I held back, maybe didn't play my cards right at times, didn't play the game of of life right. Um, but sometimes I feel like that's like butt kissing too. Like, you know, people get ahead because they kiss a lot of butt. Yeah. <laughs> and they they'll, they they kind of sell their souls to get, you know promotion to get to gain more success and and this is about think where you know some of the racial tension comes from with black men is you know we're not starting on second base or third base you know i've heard you say that before yeah we're not even on the team wow you know um other people are starting on third base <laughs> or i got to get i'm just trying to sign up to get on the roster how do i make the squad uh, I'm not on deck. I'm not in the hole. I'm not even in the stadium. <laughs> I don't know where I'm at. Um, yeah. So, absolutely, you, you you feel overlooked. And in my in my profession, if you will, or I don't know if I would call it a profession since I'm in ministry, but my calling, you don't always go and think in thinking promotion. You don't really, you never really think that. You think I'm doing what I'm called to do. Yeah. But the business side of ministry, the business side of church, particularly if you're working at mega churches or you know bigger churches. Mm-hmm. Um, You would like to think that you have an opportunity to um, expand what God is doing in your life. Um, And I've never felt, no matter where I've been, that I would have a shot. Wow. So I always feel, so you kind of always feel overlooked. So you just, you kind of get in where you can fit in and you do the best you can Mm -hmm. and you roll with it.
0: Mm -hmm. I wonder how many other people can resonate with that. Just always thinking no matter what you do. It doesn't seem like just enough. Yeah. And when you say that, I'm not hearing me personally that you are asking for pity. I just hear you being real to say it almost feels like no matter what you do, you know, you're just going to stay here, like at a certain point. And
1: yeah, I'm not asking. It's certainly not asking for pity. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm I'm happy doing what I do and I'm proud of doing what I do. Um, I've changed the landscape a little bit the way I do it now. Yeah. Because I you know I do what I, what I what I want what I want to do really mm-hmm. um for the most part but um th- the reason'm I'm, I'm where I'm at now is because of that though mm-hmm. is because of being overlooked and, and underutilized and mm-hmm. undervalued maybe under and you feel underappreciated you just and you just don't you know you don't know where you where you sit with people so it's it's, it's very unsettling you know yeah final
0: thoughts is there anything about your story and who you are that you want people to remember or know. They don't remember anything else.
1: And when when I share my testimony with people, I always start, hey, you're looking at an inner city kid. I always say that, you know, you're looking at an inner city kid. There's something about being an inner city kid that although it was difficult, I'm proud of. Um, You're automatically associated with you know you either play ball or you gang bang you um you know you don't respect your family and your parents and you're always in trouble or you're a thief um and as i said earlier i was labeled all those things and a lot of those things i did um but it wasn't because of it wasn't because i enjoyed doing it and i wanted to do it it was because i was looking for a way out and we didn't we don't know what the way out is that you, you kind of become a product of your environment. You do what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in a pandemic right now, but back in the nineties, there was a crack pandemic, right? Maybe even earlier than that. But from what I remember, when the crack pandemic was going strong, guys just started selling drugs. Mm -hmm. They were like, okay, I can be successful. I can make money. I can get a car with the fat rims and stuff. If I do this, sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was my reality. And, I was able to escape that reality and make a life for myself and have a family. And if there's anything that I want people to know about me and my story is that the odds were stacked against me, but I was able to, I was able to come out okay.
0: Yeah. Final question. You've been through all of these things. Why have you never gone to therapy? Therapy? Yeah. (laughs)
1: I got you as a wife. Why would I need to go to therapy? You're the therapist. Am I the
0: therapist? But I haven't always been the therapist.
1: I think you don't, you don't think about not
0: Think about Even though I kind of have been the way I've been all you the don't time.
1: Th- you don't think about going to therapy. When, when you grew up the way I grew up, you don't think about, I need to go talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. You, just, you just fight. You know? Mm-hmm. That's what inner city kids do. We fight. Mm-hmm. We don't go sit on couches and talk to people. Yeah. Um, we don't even know what that means half the time. Like, what do you mean? I got to share how I feel about this.
0: (laughs) Which is honestly why I was so surprised that you agreed to do this because you're not one to, I mean, like you'll talk about your feelings, like while you're doing stuff, but Mm. sitting and just having intimate conversation, especially conversation that, you know, other people are going to hear is not usually your thing.
1: (laughs) And this is like the PG version. Like we could dive into some stories that can get super, super detailed and graphic um, but yeah, you don't grow up thinking or even now because the way I grew up, I'm not thinking, Hey, I need to go seek out therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I have a handle on my feelings and I appreciate them because they help me get through things. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Like I don't need to run from them. They're real. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't even think if I go to a therapist, anything's gonna be fixed. It's just being able to get things off your chest. I think, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and that's cool. I think that's cool. But
0: yeah,
1: I never needed it. Never. I never felt like I needed to do that. Sure. For no, he, for I healing, you if you totally,
0: will. Yeah. No, I wanted you to be totally honest, but you know, I had to.
1: But if people need therapy, yeah. disclaimer: if you need therapy, <laughs> I think it's great. You need to go and find a therapist. You know, Charisa's probably has a couple no, openings, whatever. maybe. Ever stop? <laughs> I'm just playing. No. Thank you. I
0: appreciate.
1: You're it. You're welcome back. You coming in. Today's again. our anniversary.
0: Today is you our didn't, anniversary. You didn't mention that.
1: Happy anniversary.
0: Happy anniversary. How long
1: have you been married to this guy?
0: I have been married to this guy for twenty-two years.
1: Has it been good? What
0: in the world? It's been a ride. It's been great. Yeah. yeah we're getting ready to be empty nesters. Figuring out what that looks like.
1: That's gonna be good.
0: Yeah. It's like, we're gonna
1: save some money well, on that man, food budget. Man, that to do? food
0: budget is about to be popping. Mm-hmm. I For those of you who joined us today, so appreciate you just being here in this space. You know, I feel like as I listen to Randy's story, there are bits and pieces of it that almost feel like I'm hearing it for the first time. But the key is we all need to be heard. We do learn from our stories. We absolutely learn from what we go through, but we can also get stuck in what we go through. And so part of the goal of this podcast is for you to learn about other people and begin to open your eyes to what you see isn't always the whole story. Is to realize that even amongst your own story, when we hide parts of our story, we lose part of who we are and what makes us part of who we are. You know, if you find yourself in a moment where you look around and you think this life is not exactly what i see for myself or the people around me don't really know me i always encourage you to find somebody who will listen and not judge and just hear you doesn't necessarily always take a big system of work but it's important for us to be heard and for everyone to know that your story doesn't matter and that it is honored and respected I hope that you will join us again in the future because there's always layers of hidden stories waiting to be told.